Well, as Matt said, my name is Trev. Uh, it's a delight to be with you this morning and to open up uh, the Bible. We attempt to work our way through books of the Bible or through passages in the Bible on a very regular basis. And if you don't have a Bible, would you raise your hand and one of our ushers would love to come and bring you a Bible. We'll be in, uh, as Matt said, the, the book of Psalms. It's, in some ways, it's not really chapter one. It's, it's song one. Psalms simply means songs. And so if you have a, you see that? Uh, we've got a, a Bible in need here. Um, if that's your first Bible, go ahead and keep it. If it's not, just return it so we can use it uh, next week. So Psalms is about in the, it seems about in the middle of your Bible approximately. And before we, uh, before we get into it, I just want to kind of introduce and pull you into this particular uh, book of books, essentially. Psalms is divided up into five actual books, and it's essentially uh, uh, the Hebrew songbook. We're calling the series Lyrics because that's all it is. We don't really have any of the tunes that go along with the songs, and I say probably to some of our detriment because they'd be a lot easier to remember. Have you noticed how music and words together is like this? They somehow have this way of catching us and, and making us remember things. Anyone? Anyone get a song stuck in your head that does, the, the lyrics don't matter much, but for some reason the song is in your head over and over again? The song that's in my head lately is, Sugar, yes please. Not bad, eh? It's the stupidest lyrics of all time, I think. But it's in my head and it goes over and over and over again. Another one is Lost Boy. Anyone Lost Boy? My little seven-year-old. I am a lost boy from Neverland. I, I, I can almost sing the song already. Has this funny way of catching us and reminding us and giving us memory. And sometimes when we look at songs... We look at the lyrics of songs, but they don't have music to them. They don't, we don't catch quite the pop that they're supposed to be. And so we have to remember that. That's going to give us some strategy that there's going to be things that we just automatically miss because there's no music to it. You ever read the lyrics of a song and there's no music to it and it just doesn't have that same pull? Like, how about this song? I'll see if I can remember the opening uh, lyrics to it. I think it goes something like this. Ah, ha, ah, 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 thunder. <laughs> I think it repeats itself. You can all say it with me. Ah, ha, ah, 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 thunder. Doesn't have the same kind of pop, does it? I remember, I remember that running the 12-minute run in physical education when I was a kid, just having this like pound through everything by Def Leppard, uh, just like coursing through my veins. I can still to this day uh, re remember at least half of the nitty gritty dirt band lyrics because they're just so, they're put to music. Now I think God knew this about this and, and knew this about us. In fact, I actually think that God designed it this way that that when lyrics are somehow attached to songs, it, it has this unique way of capturing both our minds and our hearts, our emotions and our brains. Intellectually, we're, we're stimulated. So even if, if you're wondering, like, I don't really like to sing. Why do you guys sing at Urban Grace? Because we want these words. We want you walking out of here humming things like, God is good all of the time. All of the time, God is good. 
And sometime during the week, you're probably going to need that. And you're going to hum that to yourself. Last week, Tim talked about a song that keeps going through his mind. He's a good, good father. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. What a great uh, song to keep humming under your breath. And so I'm excited about this whole series and the way it's, I think, despite the fact that we don't have any of the music that goes along with it, the hope is that we get this thirst to keep going back to the Psalms. And some of you have already been going back to the Psalms. How many of you, when you hit a rotten day, Psalms is the first book you turn to? Anyone? I know people that aren't Christians that turn to the book of Psalms because why? Because somehow it seems to voice how you're feeling. Somehow it seems to connect with where you are. Somehow you can almost feel the emotions that go on. Like this idea that God is good is an important idea, and yet somehow when put to music, it brings tears to our eyes because we're like, yes, today I needed to feel how good God was. And my hope is actually that we spend time, regular time all over the summer, just learning some of these songs, some of these lyrics, and being able in some ways not necessarily to hum them under, under our breath, but in, in metaphorically and maybe physically, yes. That some of the songs we sing are actually rooted directly in the Psalms. Now, we have to remember that they are poetry. Now, some of us are like, well, I don't really love poetry. And I don't really get poetry. But here's what I say. You probably know many of the popular songs. And that's all songs are, is just poetry. So let's not be afraid of this idea that there's something to this. Some of the uh, greatest, most powerful things ever stated are, are, are poetry. And Hebrew poetry in particular is, is somewhat unique in that it's really, I love this word, I'm learning this word, terse. Right? It's really like short and filled full of meaning. And so you can read it very quickly, but honestly, it's not really meant to read quickly. It's meant to read repeatedly. It's meant to just consider slowly. And it's very, very blunt, very short. And if you're trying to get through Psalms in terms of content and, and read through them fast, I'm afraid you'll probably miss a lot of the depth that comes with Psalms. And so a lot of them are quite short. Uh, we miss a lot of the rhyming. We miss a lot of things and just assume that there's not a lot we can catch up on, and I'm going to try and do my best throughout the summer, and we have some guest preachers that are going to take on some of the psalms throughout the summer, that we're going to try and capture some of those things that are missed, just in simple poetry. But today, it's really very simple. So as I said, you know, the kind of the, you need to know that the book, the whole book of psalms, 150 psalms, is divided up into five different books. And they would have, we're talking about a culture that was oral for the most part. And so very little of this would have been known. They would have sung these things to help them remember them. And we're going to really concentrate this summer on book number one. So Psalms 1 basically through 41. And we're going to pull out different kind of genres, different types of Psalms, different ones that do different things. Some that really state things the way they are. Some that are really question marks about uh, where people are. And the first psalm of the first book is, is unique in the sense that it's the psalm or the song that introduces the songbook. So it's in some ways the introduction to the entire book of psalms. And what it is is a beckoning to listen to psalms. Psalms is also located in the Bible in what, was called, what is called the wisdom literature. 
That means it really is, doesn't necessarily, um, it, it's, it's very unique from the way that we're expecting. It's not a story. Um, it's not just kind of stated fact. It's very different. It's, it's stated in a very wisdom-like literature. That's where you get the book of Job. By the way, book of Job, one of the hardest books I've ever had to under, try to understand. I'm still wrapping my head around it. But a, a fantastic book for reaching into the depths of, of the darkness of feeling away and, and alone from God. I don't know about you. Have you ever felt like God hasn't talked to you and you wanted him to? Anyone? You ever felt like, I need some help from God. I need God to come into my situation. And you have this, not even these questions for God, but this angst. God, where are you? I'm trying to text you. Not delivered, it says. That's what the wisdom literature helps us with. It gives us wise ways of living. Not like, you know, if you do this, this will happen. It, it basically says this is the path and direction of wise living. And Psalm number one actually isn't necessarily exclusively just about reading your Bible. It's about pursuing wisdom. And right away we're going to have a challenge on us because our culture says there are many wise ways to live. Our culture says there's a lot of different streams that will lead us to God. Here's what Psalm number one, book number one says. There's two ways to live. You follow wisdom, which is following God's instruction, or you follow foolishness. Your choice. And that's literally my point today. This is the way the wise person chooses. This is the way the foolish person chooses. Now it's up to you and God can figure it out in the end. So that's the message basically in shorthand form. So the wise person, the foolish person, and then your choice. It's up to you. And so we will end by basically having an opportunity to say, now, how am I going to choose? What direction is it that I want to go? And so let me read the Psalm book one, Psalm one for you. I want to make some initial comments. Uh, remember the time in which this is written. It was very common to use the word man as people. Okay, so don't get, like, this is not a sermon for men. This is a sermon for people. And mankind or man was very often used, very comfortably used, I want to add, in that particular culture. No one was offended by this in that particular culture, that it just stood for general men and women. In fact, some translations have just translated people as a way of helping us with this. And so Psalm, verse 1, book 1, Psalm 1, says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted beside by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so. But are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. 
Again, very fast. There's so much in here. We want to slow this down. And you notice, because it's poetry, it's filled with word pictures. It's filled with techniques. Uh, A very important commentator on wisdom literature has said, poetry helps us decide our reading strategy. So when you see songs, when you see poetry in the Bible, slow the heck down. Take some time to gather and just just think. And I'll, I'll talk about this word, meditate. Just take some time to think through what is actually being said there and don't pass over it very quickly. And so we, we start up, what's the wise person? The pursuit of the wise person. This, this option is given to us that there are two ways to choose. We can choose wisely. And here's what happens. The wise person is blessed. The wise person is blessed. That word sometimes there means uh, favored by God. But I would say it, it actually has a connota- connotation of being happy. The person's happy. Like it's not just like this deep joy that I can fight through this and it's gritty. It's like you're actually a happy person if you pursue this way. How interesting is that? That the Bible doesn't seem to be bothered by this idea of like, like some people are like, oh, I'm not, happiness isn't really that important to God. Yes, it is. He says, happy is the person who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And you see that right away in the text. You see the the wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. Well, which one is it? Again, poetry has this unique way of building on itself. And so in some ways you could break it down to like A, what's more B, what's more C. And so you get this kind of concentrated, kind of focused, cone-like action within essentially poetry. And so you have these three different words. The wicked, the sinners, the scoffers. Those who deliberately choose. It's like this all-encompassing category of those who are unwise. Not just those who commit a few sins, but those who mock people for following rightly. Ever been mocked for doing the right thing? I remember once being a basketball referee. One of the other referees actually said, don't tell the government what we do. You'll ruin it for all of us. And mock the fact that I would perhaps put this on my taxes. That I had worked for the school district that the government pays for. I remember thinking like, there's there's a sense in which we get mocked for doing the right things at times by people that don't want to do the right thing. There are people that deliberately choose the opposite way that, that make fun of us. And so there's this idea that it's not just kind of one aspect of, of not unwise living. It's not accidental. It's this whole complete package of the, the wicked, the sinners, those who disobey, knowingly and unknowingly, those who mock, those who choose deliberately whatever is right, they just want to do the opposite thing. And you see also this sense of this walk, stand, sit. It's a very interesting image. Some scholars are like, it may be overreaching, but there is something unique about the way this happens. You think about this. Let's slow down and think about this for a second. You know, walking alongside someone, you're associating with them. If you don't like someone, it's very hard to walk alongside them, isn't it? Right? Even when you're mad with a spouse or a kid or something, you stay back there. I'm going to walk by myself. Right? You don't walk with them. It's association. 
right? Do you walk beside someone you're presently in conflict with naturally? What do you do? Separate. So the righteous person, the wise person, does not walk alongside those who are wicked, associating closely. This doesn't not necessarily mean you don't talk to them. It, it's just this idea of association, like, I'm going to take you seriously. And then what happens? You stand there and you chat with someone. Even closer, isn't it? It's even closer. I mean, it's just kind of like... Like if, if you, again, if you're in conflict with someone and, and you're not agreeing with them, you, you step back. You ever said something really controversial to someone, they just kind of step back from you and they're kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Breaking association. Now to sit down and have coffee with someone, even closer, isn't it? You see that funnel effect, that concentration effect? The righteous person doesn't move toward deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper association with those who are choosing unwisely. There's a sense in which you, you at some point got to say, see you later, I'm choosing wisdom. I'm choosing wisdom. I'm choosing God's instruction. We'll keep, we'll keep going here. He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. I love that word delight. It's much better than the word duty, don't you think? So duty is in the law of the Lord. I know that sound, duty sounds really noble, but it doesn't have any punch to it, right? I performed a wedding ceremony this past week. Went to a reception last night. It'd be really awkward if the groom stats up there and says, you know, here's why I'm with you. Because it's my duty. Why do you love me so? Because I should. That, that has no meaning. It's like, what? I hate, I, I love, I love the law of the Lord. It's my delight. I mean, this is a thing you look forward to. I think there's some of us that this is the way we, we always wish we could treat the law of the Lord. Now, let me say something very clearly about the law of the Lord. Some of you hear that word, the law of the Lord, and you think that applies specifically to just the laws of God, like Leviticus. And you're like, I literally don't know how you delight in Leviticus. doesn't make sense to me. But this was this big word, this, this word law, sometimes translated Torah. It began to be used for God's instruction. Because within the law, the love and grace of God is shown. And within the stories of God, the love and grace of God is shown. Within the law, like true right living and obedience and blessing is shown. And those who, I won't even get into the kind of the authorship. There's all kinds of varied ideas. We don't actually need to know those as much. They're not nearly as important as one might think. But essentially, this, this, this word for, for law becomes instruction. In fact, that's what it actually says in my Bible. There's a little number two beside the word law there, and it says instruction. So don't hear this as like Old Testament versus New Testament or the stuff that before Jesus that's useless. Instruction about God, essentially, is how we need to read that. But this person's delight is in the instruction of God. Meaning there's just something good about this that, that, that is not just worthy to be pursued, but wanted to be pursued. 
I don't, again, I don't want to kind of narrow this down to just the Bible, but the instruction of God encompasses a lot of things. I mean, week after week, we preach from the Word of God, but we call this the instruction of God. We call the singing of what we do the instruction of God. Call the things that help us get connected to God the instruction of God. And it's delight. Perhaps at this time is, is where some of you begin to have these inner longings and go, oh, I wish I loved God's instruction more. Anyone ever feel that way? You open your Bible and, and, or you, you, you show up to a church service or you begin a conversation about God and it just feels dull. There's something missing to it and you just, you want so badly to delight. See how the, the Psalms have this unique way of reaching into our souls and drawing us out and go, okay, maybe that's not you, but I want that. And so it actually begins to change the way you pray and ask. And some of you, this is what you're going to get out of it Sunday morning. You go, oh, I want to delight in God's instruction. That's my prayer for this week. I want to just delight in this. I don't want this to just be a story about God. I want to know the God behind the words. I want to know the God that this is speaking about. I want to be in contact with Jesus Christ who created this world. Notice that he says on his law, he meditates day and night. A couple of words there should pop out for us. Meditate, I guess three words. Meditate and day and night. Meditate is this really cool Hebrew word. Again, poetry here, a little bit of a nerd moment. But this word meditate is actually automatopoeia. Say that out loud really, really fast eight times. It sounds hilarious. Anyone know what automatopoeia is? No. <laughs> it, it's a word that sounds like what the word describes. Kind of like the word hiss, right? I think of right, right, Tom? That's automatopoeia, right? The word hiss, what does it sound like? It sounds like a hiss. Right? You can say that word and people know exactly what you mean, like hiss. Now, meditate in the Hebrew, I don't, I'm not doing this very good, but it's H-G-H. I think. Something along those lines. I'm probably butchering it. But it's this idea of like muttering under your breath. Have you ever seen like, okay, we're not making fun of people, but have you ever walk downtown and see someone talking to themselves? You ever watch them? That's what it sounds like. Meditate. Some of us are like, Christians don't meditate. Yes, we do. We just don't do it like everyone else. This idea of meditate means to mutter under your breath and then let's add this to the day and night. This is not like 6.30 in the morning and 6.30 at night. This is like an all-encompassing thing. So at any point, day, night, muttering. I love this image. Just speaking the word of God to yourself over and over and over again, no matter what situation, no matter what time of day or night. Being able to apply in every situation. Okay, this is where I need this promise. So I'm giving you liberty to talk to yourself. It's from the Bible. How cool is that? These two verses. See all these really rich metaphors that are just starting to rise up? So the application that I think is good for us is, what would it take for you to have a life 
where you could mutter the word of God, the instruction of God at any point, day or night, under your breath. Would you have to change anything that you do? What kind of things would you do to make sure that you were able to, in every situation, apply God's instruction to your life and God's word to your life? Well, you probably have to what? Read it over and over again. We encourage this. This is so much more broader than just like a reading program, right? Like just checking off the box and reading it day after day. You probably end up memorizing it. You might find ways to, to and from work. Someone ran the marathon two weeks ago and recited the whole Sermon on the Mount as they ran the marathon. That's what it means to meditate. Just mutter this over and over and over and over again. Didn't need the Bible, didn't need this right in front of their face to read, but we're just thinking about this going over and over again. You might have to get the Bible on audio. You probably want to meet in groups. See what I'm doing here? You might want to meet with another person and say, this is how this is starting to apply to my life. You probably have to study it and ask questions and be like, I don't get this. What do you think? And so you might consult someone else's work on this. You might say, oh, you know, can someone pray for me that this can become true for me? At the end of the service, we're going to have an opportunity for prayer. Some of you, I would encourage you, come and pray that you would delight in God's instruction. Because this is probably, for some of you, not a matter of, I don't have any time. I hear this all the time. I think this all the time. I don't have time to do this. And yet, it's amazing what I can find time for. The busiest people that I know that say, I don't have time for anything, when the playoffs come, have found a way to watch every single game. Somehow. Why? Because they delight in the game. That's why. You find time for things you delight in. You probably have to sit there and think about this. You might need some silence and some solitude. You might want to write your way through this. You might want to start downloading a podcast and find out how someone else preached it. Some of you, the best way to do it would be just to teach your way through it and just kind of keep coursing it through your veins. Had a conversation with someone yesterday about baseball. One of my new delights. It's wonderful to talk baseball. It's also wonderful to talk baseball with someone who totally knows baseball. It's like, you could, like, it didn't seem to matter what team or what era. It's like, you could talk about baseball. And I thought, well, why does this person can talk about baseball at a moment's notice? Why? Every day he paid attention to baseball. That's why. In his spare time, checking out stats, watched some games, played the game, tried it out for himself, figured it out. Talk to other people about it. Memorize stats. There's no one way that just kind of got this in his life. It was just over, this, over the course of time. And I feel like this is, this is what a wise person does. It's not, this is not about a Bible reading program or a Bible study. This is about finding a way to get the Word of God, the instruction of God, into our hearts in a way where we don't need the Bible in front of us for it to come out of our mouths. What a great challenge. 
What a great prayer. You see how sometimes you go to the Word to know how to pray, not before you pray. See how slowing down and just meditating on those kinds of things is so helpful. Because I know some of you are like, okay, this is it. Today's the day. Starting new Bible reading program. At least one chapter per week. I know it. And that's the point of going through these Psalms. Look at the next verses. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Oh, I love this. This is a wise person. It's fruitful and durable. Right? He's like a tree planted beside streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. I have a picture here, a helpful word picture for you. One of my close friends loves oak trees. Just constantly, he's always talking to me about yammy, 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 about oak trees, how great they are, right? Some big poplars cut down on my street and he was like, yeah, that's because they're making way for the, the good tree, the oak tree. Okay? Here's why he loves oak trees. They got deep roots. They last. Here's like, pretty significant root system on an oak tree, I believe. Think of that. Do you see that as like a fairly significant oak like root system? Like that tree's not going anywhere in a storm. I love that image. I, I did some very minimal research and found out that essentially most root systems of any strong tree are three times the width of the canopy of the, of the tree itself. So if the canopy of your tree is like 20 feet, it's like 60 feet of root system. That's impressive. And you don't know much about the root system until the storm, until the dry seasons. You ever watch these Netflix documentaries and you're like in the middle of the desert and you've got this like tree that's like, the giraffe's eating like green leaves in the middle of the desert. Like, what the heck? How can that be? A root system that is literally drawing water at all seasons. Why should we pursue God's word and instruction in, in seasons that are really fruitful when it doesn't feel like we need it? Because we will all face those dry seasons, every single one of us. This is what, what happens to that kind of person who pursues that kind of wisdom, still yields fruit. It's not based upon seasons. It's not based upon hot or cold. It doesn't say the, uh, it's like a tree planted um, that yields fruit whenever it feels like it or when times are good. And its leaf sometimes withers depending on the storm. No, no, no. This person doesn't matter what you go through. The circumstances are almost outside of this. And all that he does, he prospers. And then the, 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 um, the opposite, we move into the foolish person. And even as we move into the foolish person, they are, our application is here is, what would it take? What would it take for you to pursue this kind of wise living? If this is true, if following God's instruction is the wise way, then what would it take? I don't know what it will take for you, but I'm guessing that you'll have to rearrange something See, wisdom is not something that just kind of comes to us really naturally. It's actually something that needs to be pursued. 
There's not much said about the foolish person except for this. The foolish person is fickle. The foolish person is like this, like this. One day this, one day this. Does that sound familiar to the opposite of an oak tree? You catch that at all? It's a very opposite effect. There's not this habitation. There's not this musing. There's this chaff, this imagery of chaff. Chaff is really commonly associated with foolish living or disobedient living or sinful living. In fact, Jesus uses those same words again in the New Testament. He said the wicked are like chaff. In fact, a lot of Jesus' words are actually just recounting some of the wisdom in the Psalms. And again, he uses this basic three uses the word wicked again. Wicked shows up like four times in six verses. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Let's take a look at the word picture of chaff. I don't know, I, I grew up on a farm, so the image of chaff is, is very uh, vivid in my mind. I feel like that's also where I got my hatred of dust. But chaff is essentially, it's, it's kind of the kernel outside of the wheat. And all you have to do to get rid of chaff is basically nothing. <laughs> Let the wind take care of it. Right? So as chaff goes through a combine, it, it essentially just it shakes over and over again and just fluffs up the straw. And eventually the heavy wheat just falls immediately in some of the hoppers and goes in. And the chaff just whatever whether it's, it's man-made wind that's driven by the straw storm in the back or just a really windy day, the straw just kind of gets left in midair and the wind just takes it. What a good image of the wicked and the sinner and the scoffer. See, the chaff is at complete mercy of the wind, isn't it? Complete mercy, mercy of the wind. Chaff can't fight wind. Our wedding was located in Waterton. I don't know if you've ever been to Waterton, but I think it's the wind capital of the world. I'm sure gale force winds, I'm sure they're like 100, 120 kilometers an hour at the top of that hill. And just the way Waterton is built, about three hours south here, it's just like this wind funnel. And it comes to a head right at the hill and kind of comes up the hill and literally like, we watched, we stood over and like leaned over and it kept us up. It was so powerful. It's like chaff has no business in that kind of a wind. But guess what an oak tree would do? Stay right there. In fact, there's trees all along the hill that have good root systems. Chaff wouldn't stand a, stand a chance. You know, some of us are like chaff. We're actually not that worried in pursuing wisdom of God, and yet we find ourselves drawn wherever culture goes. If you think of wind in terms of culture, some of us are at the deep mercy at our culture, and wherever our culture veers off to the right, so do we. When our culture veers off to the sharp left, so do we, because we don't have a choice. We're not pursuing wisdom. We're inactive. And so we just, we have to go with the flow. That's why it's so important to root ourselves in the instruction of God. Because the instruction of God doesn't change its mind on things. 
I've noticed this in some of the preaching that enters into our culture, how vastly different it is from even 20 years ago. Why is that? It's because if your life is pursuing not wisdom, it seems as though you don't have a choice. You just veer off. It also says in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. At first that didn't really make sense to me as I thought my way through it, but it's really interesting how essentially what this is saying is that if you're pursuing, uh, if you're not pursuing wisdom, then you can't hang around wise people very long. I've noticed this in our city groups, by the way. Without picking on anyone, I've noticed those who are pursuing unwise ways of living, how they find ways of removing themselves from community. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that with a particular friend who's made a bad decision and they somehow find a way not to talk to you anymore if you've been corrective in what you have to offer them? Have you noticed those who are actively pursuing not wisdom, let's say? There's fine excuses for not showing up to church family events where they learn the instruction of God. That's what the text says. They can't stand there very long. They can't associate very long with righteous because they know they will be confronted with this two-choice type of living. Perhaps that's you this morning. You've just found a way out of community and you repeatedly think that somehow this is going to be helpful because you're better than those people. You know better. You understand better. And here's what the wisdom of Psalm says. This is going to lead to nothing. And that's our choice at the very end. It's pretty simple. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You can fool a lot of us, but you cannot fool God. I'll say that again. You might even be fooling yourself and fooling others, but you will not fool the all-wise God. He can tell. He knows your motivations. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your strengths. And at some point, regardless of what you think you choose, God is going to figure it out and he has a decision. You can avoid it all you want in this life. Ultimately, it will end. Even it says in one of theirs, in, in all that he does, he prospers. That's a righteous man. It doesn't mean monetarily like, okay, the righteous person makes a lot of money and everything that they do uh, turns to gold. That's not what that text is saying. It's saying ultimately, the righteous person who follows the instruction of God wins in the end. And ultimately, no matter how much Wicked people think they're getting away with something. They have to recognize that the end of their life will come and there's a judge at the end who knows the difference between the two. And that's exactly how Jesus speaks at the very end. At the, in the final day, at some point, we all ha will have to recognize, we'll have to stand before God. He says, I will separate the wheat and the chaff. It'll be easy. So there's a choice for us, Always. Perhaps this morning you're not new to the Christian faith. You're old to the Christian faith. You know this stuff. In fact, in some ways you hear this, you're like, I know better. 
I have not been pursuing the instruction of God. I have, it's not a delight in my life. And you've hit some very interesting points in your life and you can feel the tearing away at your root system and it's not very good and your desire is hunger. It's my hope this morning is that your hunger turns into a prayer. Turns into an opportunity. This is why week after week we encourage you to come back and hear the challenge from God. It's a challenge for all of us. I mean, this kind of stuff wrecks me. I'm supposed to be teaching this week after week. And yet I have the very same struggles as everyone else. And my prayers look a lot like yours, which is, oh, dear Jesus, help me to delight. May I not be like the wicked. May I not just assume that I'm understanding and falling in love with you. Perhaps you're brand new to the Christian faith. And you've simply been trying to add the morals of the Christian life into your life. And here's my encouragement for you. Stop it. It won't work. It'll lead to great frustration. The way of following God's instruction is not, is not another way that you can find truth. It is the way. And for all of us who feel like, oh, feel guilty. I can't do this. I've tried. I would say this. That Jesus is the one who actually does the planting beside the stream of water. That all of our earning can still never get us close enough to God to please Him. It still cannot earn us this relationship with God. That Jesus was the best example for us, he actually followed this to a T. He had it so deep within his heart and soul that when he was taken out into the wilderness by the devil to be tested by the devil, which God allowed, he began to spout and mutter the book of Deuteronomy. And the devil began to try to tempt him and lure him away from the plan and Jesus was like, hey, I don't listen to you. I don't eat from your table. I eat from the Father's table. And so let us not forget that despite all of our efforts, we will never fully be able to pursue wisdom without trusting in Jesus. But by trusting in Jesus, he begins to plant us deeper. He develops our roots. He makes us grow. He gives us the faith. I love this song. Lord, we believe, help my unbelief. I love that prayer. Because what it does is basically say, yes, there's a part of me that believes and no, there's a part of me that does not yet believe. I need help. And so the choice is ours. Let us trust in the Jesus who has fully completed everything that the Father had given him. Who was so obedient that he even walked up a hill, carrying a cross, and hung on it, dying in our place for our sins. That's how obedient he was to God's instruction. He didn't mostly obey God's word. He completely obeyed God's word in our place, on our behalf. So Julie, would you come? And bring your team. And let's meditate. 
Let's mutter the gospel to ourselves. Let's mutter the good news of Jesus as we come and partake. Here's what this represents. The cup represents the shed blood of Jesus. The the bread and the crackers represent the body of Jesus. Let us mutter unto ourselves, isn't it good that God himself came to us, did not wait for us to come to him, but came to us, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we deserved in our place for our sins, so that by trusting in him, we could have everything that he earned through his obedience. Isn't it good? Yeah, I hope some of you just mutter this to yourself. This is good. This is really good news. That your efforts are not good enough, but God's efforts for you are. That it is not about what you do in reading this, it is about what God does in you, through you, in spite of you for the most part. Isn't that good? Let's meditate together.